Book of Joshua, if your Bible's open, great. Joshua chapter one, verse one. As we head back to the Hebrew scriptures, I'm really excited about this. I've been excited about this for several weeks now. Um, back in the Hebrew scriptures, I, I, sometimes people will say, why are you in the Hebrew scriptures? Aren't we Christians? Listen, if you don't understand, if you haven't read, if you haven't studied the Old Testament, the New Testament is gonna come short of its richness and depth and meaning. There's so much you will not understand without the Hebrew scriptures. And it's our intention, and I'm gonna say this again in a little bit, but it is our intention at the bridge to teach the whole counsel of the word of God. He didn't just give us Matthew through Revelation, he gave us Genesis through Revelation, and I know that it's his intention that the church know his word front to back. So Joshua, chapter one, uh, chapter one, verse one. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I've given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, that's north to south, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, that's east. All the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, that's west, will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Lord, there is nothing I wanna hear more than that. Nothing more comforting nothing that brings more confidence and courage than knowing you are with us wherever we go. We recognize this was a promise you made directly to Joshua as he heard directly from you, Lord, speaking these great words. But we, <laughs> we commandeer the promise. We come and we say, Lord, we want that. And we recognize that you promised that to all your people. So Father, I pray that you would help us to be strong and very courageous. Some of us, Lord, this fall, this day, this time at the end of the age need to be turned around. Some of us need to stand back up. Some of us need, Lord, to find ourselves back in the fight as opposed to off to the side or discouraged or downtrodden. We need the courage, we need the strength that you commanded for Joshua so long ago, 
We need it today. We pray for it today. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you will fill our spirits with that same confidence and lead us forward. However long you tarry, lead us forward to that final day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Queen Elizabeth is dead. Long live the king, right? And that's what they're saying across Britain. They've been saying it. It's, it's not in you know, offense to the late queen, but it is an acknowledgement of the new king. King Charles is stepping up to the, the throne in Britain, and it's a fascinating transition and fascinating to watch. Queen Elizabeth, what an amazing woman. I don't think I've ever talked about her in here, but there are a few people in the world that impressed me, like she has impressed me, for her steadiness for 70 years of remaining a constant in Great Britain. Perhaps you're aware of this, she has gone through 15 US presidents and 15 prime ministers. She went from Winston Churchill all the way up to, what's her name right now, you all know? Anyone know? Trust, is that it, I think? All these prime ministers, all of these happening, 70 years on the throne, it's amazing. But as Great Britain is mourning the loss of this humble, steady, faithful servant monarch, they are also mourning the end of an era. And if you watch the British people as they are going through this time of mourning, you see many in tears, many deeply moved, many who never ever once had a conversation with the queen. It's not that personal relationship that there's such a deep loss for, it's the era. It's what she represented that has now gone away. And, and I could really wax eloquent on that this morning. We could just talk about what's gone away in this world. What she represented even that has passed from this world. But Great Britain and King Charles what they're facing right now is what we would call a rite of passage. A rite of passage. There's a, an anthropologist, a French anthropologist named Arnold Van Genep. Van Genep. Back in 1909, he's the one who coined the phrase, the rite of passage. You've heard it. It's not R-I-G-H-T, R-I-T-E, the rite of passage. And the way he described it was he said it consists of three distinguishable consecutive elements, what Jeanette called preliminal, liminal, and post-liminal stages. Preliminal, which means before, liminal, which means at, and post-liminal, which means beyond. All three, it's beyond the lemon. Prelimin, lemon, and post-lemon. What, what's lemon? Lemon is, is the Latin word for threshold. Before the threshold, at the threshold, beyond the threshold, that's the description that he gave of the rite of passage. You know what a rite of passage is. We see it in Jewish bar mitzvahs. We see it in uh, Christian Protestant confirmation. That's a rite of passage. Graduations, even marriages can be a, a rite of passage as, as you're leaving the home and, and clinging a man to his wife, a woman to her husband, the rite of passage. Isn't it amazing just saying a man to his wife and a woman to her husband is controversial today? But that's what the Bible teaches. We're gonna talk about that at the round table in a little bit. Some Native American cultures and customs have what they call a vision quest. And it's all about a rite of passage, passing from childhood into adulthood. 
But a rite of passage is always more than just a moment. So a graduation can be a rite of passage, but remember the rite of passage is before, at, and after the threshold. So it's coming from, it's going into, and it's crossing over the threshold moment. More than a moment, it's a movement along a timeline, and that's what we're looking at as we come into Joshua. The Israelites are finally gonna be moving from the wilderness, from the plains of Moab, they're gonna cross the Jordan and they're going to come into the promised land. But it's not just passage across the river. It is moving from one generation to the next. With the death of Moses, it's the end of an era. Truly the end of an era. And the torch passed now to Joshua. And to make sure it's clear to the people and to Joshua himself, the opening verses of the book of Joshua are all God speaking. Speaking direct to Joshua, not through signs or portents or, or other indications or dreams. He's speaking, and you know that Joshua and Moses are the only two who heard him that directly. So God is now opening a new era. The people of Israel, they're gonna leave behind an old identity, the identity of bondage and then itinerancy. They're leaving that behind to take hold of a new identity as people of the promise. Coming into the promised land. This is our land. And we are God's people. But even for the book of Joshua, it takes years for this to take place. In fact, Joshua chapter 14, verse seven. Joshua says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. But then in Joshua 24, verse 29, it says, it came out about after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. So he was 40 when he was sent in to spy out the land, right? What happened when he came back? 38 years went by. And then at the age of 78, he's gonna lead the people in the land and he's going to lead them to the age of 110, at which point Joshua will die. So the rite of passage that we're looking at, and it's gonna take our entire study to fully comprehend, the rite of passage covers 32 years in the process of Israel coming into the land and taking hold of the land, 32 years. Now, that is brief in biblical terms, right? I mean, we talk a lot about 400 years past or 1,000 years over here. And so when you're reading the Bible and studying the Bible, 32 years, that's pretty quick, but it's a lot longer than most of us want to wait for a promise. How many of you, if, if I told you, look, I've got something really special for you. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you 5,000. I'm going to write you a check for $5,000 and you'll have it in 32 years because that's how long it's going to take me to put it aside, you know. 32 years of waiting, 32 years, I want it now, right? I want fulfillment now. I want serenity now. <laughs> I wanna know now that God is doing what he said he would do. I don't wanna wait 32 years. Jesus, I want to know now what's going on. At least give me understanding now. And then it's dead silent. 
I can't tell you how many conversations I've had over the years with people saying, I don't understand what he's doing. I just wish he would tell me. I don't know why. I've been at this 10 years. I've been at this 20 years. I've been waiting 30 years to see his promises fulfilled in my life. I want it now. It's been 21 years since the terror attacks of 9-11, which is amazing. It's amazing to watch how a nation changes in just two decades, how different we are now than we were then. Some of it's very superficial uh, technology, cell phones, social media, radically different than it was back in 2001 at 9-11. But you remember what happened, and of course, it's being recognized and memorialized today as again, 21 years later, all the names of those who were lost are being read, being read this morning at ceremonies in in a number of places at the Pentagon and and at Ground Zero, and of course, up in, in the fields of Pennsylvania. And so all of this is going on, this memorializing, this looking back at the day when Al Qaeda terrorists brought the fight to American soil. And most of us didn't even know we were in a fight. Then we took the fight to them. I didn't even know what Tora Bora was. I thought it sounded like an alcoholic beverage to stay away from. <laughs> What's Tora Bora? And, and the fight went to them, and, and war took over, and then the war in Afghanistan, and all that we've seen happen since then. Well, the book of Joshua is a 32-year-long military manual of a rite of passage. And it's a good way to describe it. It's a strategic military manual for the people of God on how to fight enemies, seen and unseen, known and unknown, as they're making this rite of passage. But before we get into the fight, we've just got to get into the land, right? If we were to leave out from Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, the Mount of God, where he gave them the commandments and the law, if we were to leave out from there on September 1st of this year, of this month, back on the 1st, we would be arriving on the border of the promised land today. Because Moses told us in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2, it is 11 days from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea, which is right on the border. It was a short 11-day journey. That's all it needed to take. We would not even have the book of Numbers, the book of Deuteronomy, had they just made the 11-day journey. But you know what happened? 11 days became 13,680 days, or 38 years. Because when the children of Israel came to the border of the Promised Land, when they, at this point, at the rite of passage, When they faced a corrupt and menacing culture, their fears caused their hearts to fail and their faith evaporated and the journey went full stop. Now now think about it, the implications are huge here for us right now, when they faced a corrupt culture, when they faced a menacing culture, when they stood on the border of the promised land looking at at peoples, the Canaanites, a people who were pagan in thinking and dangerous and sure to cause bloodshed for us poor Israelites. And they're giants. Do you you remember the whole story? They could go no further without the assurance of faith. And the story's told in Numbers 13 when 12 Israelite spies, the the original Mossad, they were sent in to reconnoiter, reconnoiter the land. 
And they went in and they checked it out, grapes the size of basketballs, and they brought them back on a stick and they brought back all this fruit and they said, yes, it's an amazing land. It's a remarkable land, truly a land filled with milk and honey, and yet 10 of these agents gave a bad report. Oh yeah, it's a great land, no question, but we're like grasshoppers compared to those people over there. God had promised them the land. Before the spies ever went in, over and over and over in their short journey, in that 11-day crossing from Horeb to the promised land, and prior to that, the two years they spent at Mount Horeb, the Lord had over and over said, I'm giving you the promised land. I'm bringing you back to the land. I got you. I'm gonna take care of you. I'm gonna provide for you. I'll fight for you. They had had battles and skirmishes along the way and had been victorious, right? God promised them the land, but fear blocked their ability to go in. The rite of passage stalled right there. You know what's really ironic to me? Is the Canaanites were shaken in their sandals. They were terrified of the Israelites. The Israelites are saying, the, the 10 spies, oh, we can't go in. There are, we're grasshoppers, they're huge, they're giants. They're, you know, the, the relatives of the Nephilim live there. We can't go in. Rahab, Rahav, a prostitute in the land in Jericho, she spilled this piece of information, Joshua chapter two, verse nine. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. Here's the reality. We feel like grasshoppers to you. The land of Canaan and all the various tribes, seven nations in Canaan at the time, had heard of Israel. They were aware of Israel. They knew what had happened in the leaving from Egypt. Word had gotten to the land, the 10 plagues, the God who was with them, the power, the crossing of the Red Sea, the battles won, and they were scared to death. Let me just make a little side note here. Ephesians chapter six, verse 12 says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. And that sounds terrifying, but do you realize that your faith terrorizes the demonic horde? That if you will have faith and simply stand in the promises of God, the devil himself will flee. The Bible tells us, James 4, 7, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You don't flee unless you're frightened. You don't run away unless you're terrified. You wanna terrify the spiritual forces in the heavenly places? You trust in God. You believe the Lord for all his promises. But the problem is only two agents took God at his word. Just two. Numbers chapter 13, verse 30, Caleb quieted or silenced the people before Moses and he said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against this people for they're too strong for us. And I know they sounded just like that. And then in Numbers 14, it says, all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried and the people wept and all the sons of Israel grumbled, crying, weeping, grumbling. 
Down in verse five, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. You have got to be kidding me. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, the land which we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, how do you please the Lord? Hebrews 11 tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please him. It is faith that pleases the Lord, trusting the Lord. If the Lord is pleased with us, if we'll just show a little faith, he will bring us into this land, give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our lechem, our bread. I just love Caleb. We'll make bread out of him. What are we afraid of here? And it says that all the congregation said to stone them with stones. That's right. In their fear, stone the only two who had faith. The Bible says, then, I love this verse, then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel, father's home. Uh-oh. God showed up. So, 11 days became months, became years. Why? Why 38 years? Because God's got time. Time is on his side. God's got all the time in the world. And so I say, I want it now. I want to know now. He says, Rick, you can wait. Because there's something I need to do until you get it. Something needs to go on here in your heart, in your life. You don't understand, I do. So you just need to learn what it means to be patient. I am doing something, but I'm not gonna give it to you now. You need to take hold of the promises by faith. You need to come trusting me. Why does he take so long? To produce faith. And the reality is the only way forward, the only way to take hold of the promises of God is by faith. Hebrews 10, 38, my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now listen, I, we're gonna get back to Joshua. We're gonna study this book. Yes, I'm gonna cover all nine verses. I'm still just introducing this. But we need to understand something, especially as Christians in these days. These days can either be exciting or they can produce great anxiety. And it really depends on you. The outcome's guaranteed. Just as with the children of Israel, the promise was there. I'm giving you the land, he said. It's a done deal. Will we believe him for it or not? If we believe him for it, these are exciting times in which we live. Tough, absolutely. Challenging, of course, but exciting because we get to stand on faith with the promises of God. But if we fear, if we tremble, we will have anxiety and we will be shut down on the border of promise. We will not get into what he has for us. Yes, the winds of culture blow. Sometimes the winds of culture blow with hellish hurricane force, as I think we're seeing in our country right now. 
Yes, life is difficult. There are battles to be fought and there are giants to face and hills to conquer and valleys to navigate, but not without the promise. The promise of God stands. And by the way, the promise happens to be the namesake of this very book that we're opening. The book of Joshua or Yehoshua. Yehoshua in the Hebrew literally translates the salvation of Yahweh. That's the promise. You have the salvation of Yahweh. By faith in Jesus Christ, as a follower of Jesus Christ, and that's who I'm talking to, you have salvation in Yahweh. If you don't have faith in Jesus, let's talk about it. Because salvation in Yahweh is the promise. The book of Yehoshua is the book of the salvation of Yahweh. By the way, that wasn't even Joshua's birth name. He was not named Joshua when he was born. In Numbers 13, eight, in, in an accounting of the 12 spies, we have his given name, Hoshea, or Hoshea. Hoshea simply means salvation. But Moses said, now you're not gonna be called salvation anymore. You're gonna be called salvation of Yahweh. The salvation of Yahweh, Numbers 13, 10, Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. And the not so subtle difference between generic salvation and the salvation of Yahweh is one is accomplished by Yahweh. The other one's generic. Salvation is what everyone thinks they'll have, hopes they'll have, assumes every river's just gonna lead to the sea, so eventually we'll all get there and I'll just have salvation, that's Hosea, that's not, that's not what God has promised, just salvation for all. He's promised us Yehoshua, the salvation of Yahweh. And remember that Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father, no one comes to Yahweh, but through me. Salvation of God, that's the promise. Now, when Yehoshua appears in the Aramaic, just so you get this translation, it's abbreviated, truncated, if you will, to Yeshua. It's the same name. Yehoshua is the Hebrew name of Jesus. Yeshua is the Aramaic name of Jesus, which is why we see it translated then into Greek, Jesus, 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 Yeshua, Yehoshua. Jesus' name was Joshua in the Hebrew. This is the book of Jesus. And I want you to think of it that way because Jesus is the salvation of God. He'll even make a personal appearance in the book. I'm really excited to show you that. Jesus is gonna show up about a fourth of the way into this rite of passage. And this book is filled with prophetic pictures and types of Jesus. We're gonna talk about that in a couple of weeks on a Sunday. Just look at the prophecy of Joshua. And it's true that while this is an, an historical account of an actual happening, the true rite of passage of the people of Israel into the promised land, it is also a prophetic book of Jesus, Yeshua, and, listen, and of the victorious Christian life. This is a great book for thinking about our victory, not just then, but now. How do we live victoriously? So it's a prophetic book all set in a true historical account. But what do we know of Joshua, the man, the historical leader of Israel? We know a few things, and I'll throw these out to you real quickly here. We know Joshua was a fighter. 
In fact, at the first mention of his name, he's commanding the campaign against the Amalekites in the valley as Moses is sitting up on the mountain. Remember this, Exodus 17? And every time he held up his hands or as he held up his hands, Israel was victorious over the Amalekites. But when he got tired, <laughs> try it sometime, and had to let his hands down, the Amalekites started to push back and win. And so Aaron and her came and stood beside Moses and literally sat there. They put a rock down, had him sit down, hold up your arms, and they held his arms for him, which is a great way to do ministry together. You know, Aaron and her. That's what I think. When I think of our staff, I think I want him and her. <laughs> I want, you know, to work together, him, him and her. You know, like towels in your bathroom, his and her. Are you with me? Okay. So Aaron and her holding up his hands, and Joshua is named there. Joshua is the commander. He's the one leading the battle. We know Joshua's a fighter. We know, secondly, that Joshua was fully equipped for the task. Exodus 17, 14, the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Yehoshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You recite this over, you need to, speak this again and again to Yehoshua. He needs to hear this and remember what I did and be trained up because this is gonna be his life as a military man, fully equipped, a fighter. We also know Joshua was faithful. He was faithful. Exodus 33, 11, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses returned to the camp, this was when the tent of meeting was outside the camp. This is prior to the building of the tabernacle or as it's being constructed, the tent of meeting was outside the camp and Moses would return to the camp, but we're told that his servant, Yehoshua, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. Joshua camped out as close to God as he could get. This fighter was fully equipped and faithful and we know that Joshua was not fearful, not fearful. As he faced off with the entire fearful horde of Israel and the other 10 spies, as he and Caleb are the only two to stand up and say, no, we should take the land. They're the only two that stood with Moses and Aaron. Everyone else's faith failed, but Joshua, the fighter, fully equipped, faithful, and he was not fearful. Why? Because we know something else about Joshua he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy 34, verse nine, Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So that's Joshua. In a nutshell, fighter, fully equipped, faithful, not fearful, filled with the Holy Spirit, and for all of this, we can know that Joshua is the right man to be the front runner in this rite of passage. He's the right guy to lead out. By the way, by the way, I've been calling him son of Noon because Noon is actually the better, the better translation, better way to say his last name. It's not Nun. He's not the son of Nun. He's not a man without parents. He's the son of Noon. And you need to note this. Noon in the Hebrew means increase, continuance, posterity. What a great name. Yehoshua, son of Nun. Salvation of the Lord with posterity or for a posterity. 
The only other place in the Bible that word noon is used, it's always used for Yehoshua, the son of noon, Yehoshua ben noon. But one other place the word is used in its translation, Psalm 72, 17 says, may his name, speaking of the Lord endure, or speaking of the king actually, may his name the king, and it's messianic, may his name endure forever, may his name noon increase. As long as the sun shines, let men bless themselves by him. Let all the nations call him blessed. And it's speaking of David the king, but it's also going beyond to speak of the Messiah. May his name noon, may his name increase, may his name be a posterity. So the name of Yehoshua here, Joshua, his name implies the salvation and the posterity of Yahweh. Perfect name for the right guy for the job. And that's why I'm calling this study, this whole study of Joshua, rite of passage. Because while it's historical and it's military, I believe that the primary application of this for you and for me is taking hold of the promises of God through Yeshua, here and now by faith. It's living in the promises. Now, receiving the promises, believing the promises, and living by the promises of God. I'm gonna explain that more as we go, but my friends, that's our fight. That's what we're on earth to continue doing, to fight for the promises that we've been given, but, but hold on to that. Our lives, our lives right now are the rite of passage. You and I are in the rite of passage. More on that in just a second. Now, the book of Joshua. What's interesting about this, I mentioned it being a prophetic book, and the Jewish people recognize that. It's the first book now, it's number six in the Older Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, first book to follow Torah. Torah, as you know, is the first five books, it's the law. But then comes the Nevi'im, followed by the Ketuvim, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, what the Jews call the Tanakh. Tanakh. The Tanakh is the name of the Hebrew scriptures. And it's just based on those three sections, Torah, Nevi'im, and, and Ketuvim. The Nevi'im begins, get this, with Joshua. Well, I thought it was an historical book. Beginning the historical section, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Isn't that all just kind of, you know, historical? It is historical, but long ago when the canon of the Hebrew scripture was put together, this is prior to Jesus coming, long before, the book of prophets began with Joshua. And in fact, the Nevi'im, the second section, is divided into two parts. The Nevi'im Rishonim, which means the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, which for the Jewish people, they don't have first and second of either one. It's just Samuel and Kings. So all, it's all still there, but the breakdown, those four books are books of prophecy to the old rabbis, Nevi'im. And then there's the Nevi'im Ahronim, which means the latter prophets, and that's where you get into Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Lamentations and on through what we call the minor prophets, the books of prophecy, so while historical, even the Jewish people recognized Joshua to be a prophetic book. Truly happened to them in the past, but it speaks of something to come, something that is future. 
Well, who, who wrote the book of Joshua? Well, the Holy Spirit did. But if you want to know who, who actually penned it, the author is God, but the penman is most likely Joshua himself. This has been debated. Scholars love to debate and undercut and try to shred and tear apart and find someone else. But it's pretty obvious as you go through the book. The book as a whole is, is very complete, the language used throughout. This is one writer. It's, it's obvious that it's one writer with the possible exception of the very last chapter. And the biblical evidence really leans toward Joshua himself as the likely writer with a little help from Eliezer the high priest and perhaps Eliezer's son Phinehas, again in the last chapter. When we get there in a few, uh, few weeks, we'll talk about that. But if you look all the way back at the end, Joshua chapter 24, verse 26, you hear, Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Joshua wrote these words. Now, these words may refer specifically to the covenant that he makes with the people in chapters 22 through 24. So we know at least Joshua wrote all of that, but it's likely he wrote the entire book of Joshua all the way up to this point. And then Eliezer took up the pen because Joshua dies and just makes a conclusion statement there at the end. But I'm just gonna take it simply and straightforward. Joshua's the author, or, or the writer. God's the author. Now, to outline this book, we always do this at the beginning of a book. Let me give you a four-part outline. So you Bible students, notate, notate this, write it down. We'll mention it as we go through. Four parts to the book of Joshua. Chapters one through four is part one. And that is passage, passage. That's them entering into the promise. So part one, passage, chapters one through four. Part two, chapters five through 12, we can call perseverance. And that's all about battles and skirmishes and wars contending for the promise. Perseverance, chapters five through 12. Part three, picking up in chapter 13 through 21, possession. Possession, they are at that point going to be maintaining the promises. So passage, entering the promises, perseverance, contending for the promises, possession, maintaining the promise of the land, and then part four, picking up in chapter 22 through 24, preservation. Preservation, which is all about keeping the promise. Passage, perseverance, possession, Preservation, that'll be our outline as we go through the book. And this morning, we pick up right at the beginning with passage. By the way, something else you need to know is there are two key verses that stand out in the book of Yehoshua. Key verse number one is Joshua chapter one, verse nine. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Absolutely key to watch through this whole thing. And then the final verse that is a key verse is Joshua 24, 15. You're probably familiar with at least part of this. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but as for me and my house, what? We will serve the Lord. Key verse. So be strong and courageous, and we will serve the Lord. Let me ask you this morning. Are we strong and courageous? Are we in the generic church here in America 
strong and courageous. Can you say that personally? Can you say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? See, people vacillate and, and people tremble and people say, how in the world? There, there's, we, we've gone past the point of no return. There's no turning America around. How in the world are we supposed to do anything in this country? It's just me. I, how can I do anything? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. How about you start right at home? Husbands, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Families, love each other. Walk as followers of Jesus Christ, even when you're out in the world that people may see. Husbands, when you go to work, don't denigrate your wife. Wives, when you're at work, don't put down your husband. Why? Because you're destroying your witness. We're supposed to be different, right? A different people. A people who belong to Jesus. And in that belonging, we can be strong and courageous. If we in our own homes would choose to serve the Lord, we could shake up all of Oak Harbor and Anacortes and all of Whidbey Island and Fidalgo Island. And we could spread out onto the coast and affect the state of Washington and the entire country if we would begin just serving the Lord at home, one person at a time. Can you say that you are? And if not, be challenged, be convicted, now, for the rest of our time, <laughs> let's get into the passage. At least at the beginning here, like I said earlier, it is all God speaking, and I love that. Verse one, it came about after the death of Moses, servant of the Lord. Servant of the Lord, minister of the Lord. Such a simple title for such an amazing man, and yet that's the title that you share if you're simply a servant of God. Came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Yehoshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. If you went through our numbers in Deuteronomy study, you know they spent most of that time on the plains of Moab, literally right across the Jordan from the promised land. There it is. They could see it from their, from their camp. And they were there a while, because Moses had to re-instruct them through the book of Deuteronomy as we have it. Then Moses gave final instructions to Joshua. Then the people recognized Joshua was in charge. Then Moses has to go up on the mountain and die. Then you gotta have 30 days of mourning after Moses dies. So all of this is happening in the same place on the plains of Moab. So it's not surprising that the Lord would say now in verse two, cross this Jordan. Cross this Jordan. Now is the time Cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I'm giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Three things to quickly note. Number one, life in the passage. Life in the passage. God says, now therefore. Joshua, now's the time. Pack them up, move them out. Now's the time to go. Why is now the time? Because Moses is dead. The queen is dead. Long live the king. Moses is dead. Joshua, now you can go into the land. Why? Because Moses couldn't lead them into the land. Why? Because the law never leads you into the promise. Only Yehoshua can do that. John chapter one, verse 17. Remember the book of John? For the law was given through Moses all the way to the plains of Moab, we could add. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ, that is Yehoshua HaMashiach. Jesus leads you in. 
It had to be Joshua. This is part of the prophecy. So only Yeshua can truly take us into the promise of God, not law, not religion, not getting your act together. And don't wait until your act is together before trusting in the Lord. Because it's the work of Yeshua, it's the work of his spirit in you and and of you and through your life. Verse three, every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I've given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. Every place where you stand, every place where your foot goes, it's yours. I've given it to you. But notice in verse two, he said the land which I am giving to them. And now in verse three, he immediately says, I have given it to you. I am giving it to them. I have given it to you. Well, which one is it? Did he give it or is he giving it? Both. Yes, he gave it and he's giving it. Keep going, verse four. From the wilderness and this Lebanon. Lebanon's in the north. The wilderness is in the south. So you've got north to south or south to north. From this wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land, that's... Euphrates, as I said earlier, in the east, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the Great Sea, the Mediterranean, toward the setting of the sun will be your territory, north, south, east, and west. This is yours. I have given it to you. I am giving it to you. And this is God's awesome promise made first to Abraham, Genesis 15, passed along through Abraham's son, Isaac, passed along then through Isaac's son, Yaakov, who God renamed Israel, he has given it, and he is giving it. The land is already theirs by promise. The land is theirs for for them to take. It's theirs for the taking. I have given it, I am giving it. And this land was huge. You Bible students may remember 300,000 square miles, if you map it out, from the Euphrates to the Great Sea, from this Lebanon down to the wilderness. 300,000 square miles that God promised to Abraham, I'm giving it to you and to your posterity, your noon, your offspring. But you know, Israel would only possess the portion they claimed and they only claimed 30,000 square miles out of 300,000. If I told you I'm gonna give you $300,000, would you claim 30,000? I don't think so. If I gave you 30,000, you'd be at my door the next morning. Um, didn't you say 300? I'm just, you know, not mean to be greedy, but you said. And here God declares, I said, I promised it. I gave it and I am giving it. But Israel was content with 10%. That's an interesting number. Did you know that across America in most churches, 10% of the giving, actually 90% of the giving belongs to 10% of the people. If you're in that 10%, God bless you. If you're not in that 10%, God convict you. Not because we need it at the bridge, not because God needs it, but you need it. You need to step out in faith. It's said that 90% of the ministry work in churches is done by 10% of the people. That is not taking hold of the promises of God. Do you give 10% of your life to Jesus? That is not taking hold of the promises of God. 
Israel was like, yes, let's take it. And at the height of Solomon's kingdom, it was 10% of the promise. What did he promise us? Well, Jesus prayed in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, he has promised it and he is promising it. You have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. That's the promise. Revelation 20, verse six, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. He's already given the promise, and he's giving it. Will we be satisfied with 10%? And you can parse that out in your own personal spiritual life. Am I satisfied with just giving 10% of myself to Jesus? 10% of my life to God? 90%, that's what I've gotta take care of, Lord, but I'll give the 10%. Where do you stand with him on this? He says to the people of Israel, and it is true today, every place over which the soles of your feet tread today, guess what, will be the kingdom. Put it that way in your brain. When we return with Jesus for the millennial kingdom for that thousand year reign, every place on which the soles of our feet have already trod will be part of that kingdom. That's right now. The kingdom isn't yet, but the promise is. The promise is now. Everywhere the sole of your foot treads. Oak Harbor, Anacortes, Coopville, the Pacific Northwest, the left coast, how about, <laughs> how about the entire country? How about the world itself? Everywhere where your feet go, that's my promise. It was the promise to Israel coming into the land, but it is the promise to believers in Jesus of this earth, everywhere you go is gonna be part of the kingdom. Do you believe that? Will you live that promise? Let me put it to you this way. Are you disheartened by where America's gone in the last decade? Now, I can honestly say yes, I am. I'm very discouraged. And talking about Queen Elizabeth and what the world was like at the beginning of her reign versus what it's like now and what that era saw and where we are today. And yeah, there are some things that are good. But there's so many things that are corrupt and, and disheartening. And you look at it and you think, I made the joke about the left coast. And you think, what? What value is anything I do here because everybody's pro-abortion? Why stand against it? It's not gonna do any good. Why try to stand up for any moral truth? Why stand for gender identity being a male and a female because that's what God described? We'll talk about that at the round tables. Why stand up for that truth? It's going so far beyond that. I just, there's nothing I can do about it. Are you in that place? Do you ask yourself, why does America that was once so promising as a Judeo-Christian nation. And yeah, we have our sins in the past. I get that. And yeah, it's not been a perfect nation, but it was founded on perfect principles. And I look at the country now. Do you ever feel like, man, it's, it's so morally bankrupt. And our leaders are so corrupt and godless. Like my grandpa used to say, they're all a bunch of criminals in Washington. They're just all a bunch of crooks. Have you given up? Have you given up on your own life? 
Are you someone who says, my own life is nothing great. It's never going to be anything great. It's fine for Pastor Rick to talk about these things, for Pastor Jake to talk about overcoming. That sounds great for others, but that's just not me. Alan Redpath wrote a book back in 1955. You should all pick it up. It's an excellent book, and based, by the way, it's based on, or it uses the book of Joshua as its devotional commentary. And the book's called Victorious Christian Living. I will be quoting from it a lot during this teaching, during this, this series we're going into through this book. But Alan Redpath said, and I quote, the greatest of saints are the greatest receivers. Let me say that again. The greatest of saints are the greatest receivers. Not the greatest doers, not the greatest performers, not the, the greatest you know, optimists. No, the greatest of saints are the greatest receivers. They are the ones who receive the promise. Not 10%, but the whole thing. The great saints of history are those who simply took God at his word, who simply said, it may not be the experience of my life, but it's the truth of his word, therefore, I'm gonna live by this. Greatest of saints are the greatest receivers. That's life in the passage. As we live in the rite of passage today, this is a vital, victorious life, but it only happens if we receive it by faith. And don't make that religious. Got to receive it by faith. Got to take hold by faith. I've told you so many times, faith is trust. To receive by faith is to say, God, I trust you, and I believe you for your word, and I know you're going to do what you said you'd do, so I'm going to live that way. Receive it by faith. And by the way, even greater than territorial or, or personal victory in this rite of passage in which we are all living right now, Yahweh wants us to know not only life in the passage, but life in the presence. Life in the presence, that's number two. Look at verse five. No man will stand before you. Literally, it, it, it indicates no man will be able to stand before you. No man will be able to come up against you. No man will stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you, Joshua. What a promise. That's big. That's glowing-faced Moses we're talking about. That's Moses on the mountain, friend of God, receiving the law that we're talking about. Just as I've been with him, I'll be with you. You know what we could say? Just as God was with Israel, so God will be with his people, the church. Same idea, same God. Yahweh then, Yahweh now, Yahweh with Yehoshua, Yehoshua with us now. Just as I have been with him, I will be with you. And then he says this, and you might wanna underline it in your Bibles, I will not fail you or forsake you. Sound familiar? I will not fail you or forsake you. Hebrews 13, five, which we've quoted many times, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, I call this the five negatives that shout a positive. And it's, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Or literally, I will not cannot leave you. I will never, no, never forsake you. I will not, cannot leave you. I will never, no, never forsake you. That's the promise of God. 
And when we read that, then we couple that with the request to receive the promise. Do you believe that? When he says, I will not forsake you, Rick. Yeah, but my life is, I will not forsake you, Rick. Yeah, but, my, but, but the, I will not fail you, ever. Hmm. So if my life circumstances are not aligning with the verse, then I need to stop trusting my life circumstances and I need to start trusting the Lord. I will not forsake you, he promises. It's not a passe, bygone, old school, ancient history promise. It's for you and me now. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always. I, I looked it up, the Greek word for always means always. I am always, there's never a time when you have given your heart to Jesus, there's never a time he's not with you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Mark 16, 20, I love this, at the close of the book of Mark, it says, they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. I'm with you, I'll do it, you just receive it. I promised it, I'll make it happen. You just take hold of that. You trust me in it. Man, that's an awesome confidence, but it is so easily forgotten in the mundane of our daily lives. He's with me, he's got me. I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. You know what? You will only experience as much of his presence as your faith will lay hold of. You'll only experience as much of that withness of Jesus as you're willing to trust. And if you don't trust him for it, you're not gonna experience him. He's still there, but you won't know it. He's still with you, but you're not gonna experience him if you're not trusting that what he said is true. And by the way, and I wanna say this with sensitivity and compassion, if you're sitting here this morning and you feel like he has failed you, or you feel like God has perhaps forsaken you. Not that guy, not, not her sitting a couple rows up, not those people, but me. I think he's failed me. He didn't show up in my life. I think he's forsaken me. I get that other people he hasn't, but if you feel that way, listen carefully. You need his presence all the more. Not less, more. You need to pray more, worship more, be in the word more. But I'm in the word more than I can pray. You need it more. But I pray all that. You need to pray more. You need more of sitting in his presence. If you can honestly say this morning, he's failed me. You need more of him. More intentionality. Because less, and this is what often happens, and I'm not talking about less dams. He's on vacation, so we're not gonna mention less. But if I get discouraged, if I get disheartened, if I feel failed or forsaken by God, so I back off showing up at church. I don't read my Bible so much. I'm praying less. If all that becomes less, it fosters the discouragement. I will become more discouraged. The less of him that I pursue, the more discouraged I'm gonna become. The opposite is true. The opposite is true. More of the word, more prayer, more worship, more of focusing on Jesus builds courage. Not cockeyed optimism, but courage. See, courage will last you even 
when it hurts, even when it's painful, even when it's difficult, courage will increase if you will press in to the Lord, verse six. Wait, one more thing on that. I just gotta underscore this. I've been pressing into the Lord for 20 years. Keep pressing. Because this rite of passage with Joshua is 32 years long. Your rite of passage may be your entire life. Oh, I don't wanna hear that. You'll be so thankful when you're home. When it comes to fruition, when you finally see why, and you will, you will be so encouraged. You're gonna be blown away. And I guarantee you this, if you will press into God now, then when it finally all comes together, whether it's in this life or not, and it's very likely not in this life, when it all comes together as you stand before Jesus, I guarantee you, you will say, thank you for everything you did. Thank you for taking me through that life. And I'll even go so far as to say, if your life is painful, hurtful, difficult, and hard, he must really love you because he's doing some special work. Verse six, be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them, Abraham, Isaac, Yaakov. Verse seven, only be strong and very courageous. By the way, he's gonna repeat that three times, which is a Trinitarian approach. <laughs> be strong and courageous, the Father would say. Be strong and courageous, Jesus would say. Be strong and courageous, the Spirit would say. Verse six, be strong and courageous. You shall give this people possession. Verse seven, be strong and very courageous. Be careful, he says, to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. And I don't know if he's talking politically there or not. So that you may have success wherever you go. Do you know what that is? That's the straight truth. It's not truth that meanders to the right or meanders to the left. It is the straight truth on how to walk the straight walk. To Isaiah the prophet, or Isaiah said, chapter 30, verse 20, although the Lord has given you the bread of privation and water of oppression, though he's done that in your life, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself. Your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way Walk in it. Wherever you turn, to the right or to the left. This is the straight truth. How do I do that? How do I do that? Number three, said life in the passage. Said life in the presence of God. Number three, life in the promises. Verse eight, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Do not think in terms of the success of the world. This is spiritual success. This is godly success. It is not how the world measures success. And note this in verse eight. He says the promise, how do you live in the promise? It's in your mouth. It's in your mouth. So you speak it out. He says it's your meditation. So you think about it. You know, it's always interesting to me when I take vacation between the end of one book and the start of the other. It's vacation, it's restful, it's wonderful, but I am totally focused on the next book. I spent three weeks, two and a half in California thinking about Joshua. 
reading the book, pouring over it, considering it, wondering what's he gonna teach us, what does he have for us this fall at the bridge, I, I, I was meditating on it. I was talking about it. Cheryl finally said, are you on vacation or not? I said, I am with Joshua. <laughs> I'm with Cheryl and the kids and Joshua. It was in my mouth. I, I couldn't help it. I was talking about it and thinking about it in my mouth and in my meditation but also note this, he says, be careful to do according to all that's written in it. What's that? That's your motivation. Your motivation is what causes me to do what I do. Speak on it. Think on it. Do it. Speak on, think on, and do what? The word. The word. Oh, but he says this book of the law. Yeah, because at this point, that was the word they had. All they had at this point was Torah, right? Moses having written it down, they had the scrolls of Torah. So now God is saying to Joshua, I've given you Torah. Think about it, pray over it, meditate on it, do it. And you'll have success. And you will be prosperous for us. We will have spiritual success, godly prosperity. It's not prosperity gospel. You're not gonna have a better house and more cars and more money. That's not the point. Even if you get that, it's not the point. The point is success in the spiritual. Success as a follower of Jesus. Success rather than 10%, now I'm up at 90, 95, 100% of my life is his. Holding the promises, taking the promises. And we do so by this word being in our mouths, in our meditation, and being our very motivation. Psalm 138.2 tells us, you have magnified your word, get this, above all your name. God literally puts his word above his name. His name is his character. His name is who he is. And he says, yeah, my word's greater because my word is what's spoken out of my character. He has magnified his word above his name. Recently, my daughter told me, it's true. She said that some view the bridge, I would say some actually kind of dismiss the bridge as a study church. Oh, yeah, that, that's, the, that's the study church. Yeah, they do all the Hebrew and the Greek and they, you know, the verse by verse. Now, that's the study church. That's good for them. That's fine. But we, we, we have a mission. We need to be bringing Jesus to people so we're not the study church. Then you're not on mission. I, I, don't, I don't like being called the study church because we're not here to be scholars. But brothers and sisters, we do believe in the whole counsel of the word of God. We believe that the whole counsel of the word of God, Genesis to Revelation, is our life, is vital for life. So we go verse by verse through the whole thing, not so that we can be studious, but so that we can have his word in our mouths, in our meditation, on our hearts, and as our motivation for living. He's given us the whole word. Why would we be satisfied with 10% of it? So no, we're not a steady church, but we are a church in the word and we will continue to be a church in the word because that's our calling. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. Jesus said, it is written, quoting Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, his mouth to my mouth, my meditation, my motivation. Life in the promise. 
How can I live the promise if I don't even know what it is? But as I'm in this word, I am knowing the promise. I am motivated by the promise. I am speaking out the promise, thinking about the promise. And hey, I get it. I know I defend Bible teaching a lot. I, I know I do. But if it was in the mouth and the meditations, if it was the motivation of the majority of Christians, I wouldn't have to defend the word at all. It would just be our assumption that we gather and we open his word. Alan Redpath said this, I love it. The best way to vindicate God's word is to preach it. That is a major reason why the culture is so corrupt today. We're not in the word. People don't memorize scripture anymore. People don't pour over the scriptures. Churches are lightweight, 15, 20 minute homilies instead of getting into the word of God that he's given us. And that makes us weak rather than strong and courageous. Yeah, well, I don't think you have to go an hour and 15 minutes. No, I could go two or three if you'd let me. And why don't we? You know why the church in China, the underground church, has exploded and continues to burgeon and grow? Because they will spend four hours in the teaching of the word. And they said, in fact, it's in a book called The Heavenly Man. But they said, please, don't send preachers to China to teach us unless they can teach at least for two hours. And I see my 20-minute homily pastor friends going, I, can, I might be able to squeak out 27. It's not about the, the time, though. It is about the word of God. How else do we know truth in a capricious culture that's always changing, always in flux, filled with conspiracy and instability? How do we do that? On every promise of the word of God, we live the promise. We're in the promise. We live by the promise. So I'll preach it. But you know what? At the end of the day, every one of us, myself included, have to decide whether or not we will trust God for it. And you remember this? John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh, Yahushua, Jesus. Verse 9, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, which brings us right back to life in the passage, the rite of passage. I'm with you. I was with you through the wilderness. I'm with you in the plains of Moab. I am with you in the crossing. I'm with you in the land. I am with you. This is life in the passage. Now listen to me. This is the last thing I'm gonna tell you, but it may take me a second. If we are to fully understand this book of prophecy, there's something that we have to know. And it's a paradigm shift for Joshua. It, it was for me. Maybe it won't be for you. I, I think for many of you, this will be a big paradigm shift. This is a change in how we view the whole book. And it's so important in understanding. I've been hinting at it all morning long. And it's gonna literally take us till Thanksgiving to unpack all of this, Lord willing, but listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's talking about the Red Sea. 
And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, talking about the manna, same spiritual drink, talking about the water that God provided. And they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Mashiach, Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened, Paul says, as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. And then he goes on and lists them and talks about them. He says, do not be idolaters. Don't act with sexual immorality. Don't let us try the Lord. Don't grumble. And then in verse 11, he says, these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. That's why we're in the Hebrew scriptures. It is for our instruction here and now. And Paul makes this really interesting allusion from Israel to the church, right? Comparing Israel to the church and their, their deliverance and their crossing. They crossed the Red Sea. That's like baptism, like water baptism. And then they went, went into the wilderness and God fed them and God took care of them and, and was with them. And now they come to the river Jordan. Listen carefully here. Some of us grew up listening to and learning from a wrong assumption about the promised land. And I can sing it to you. In the hymnology of the church, this is primarily where we got this wrong theology. And I'm being very clear, this is a wrong theology. We sang songs like, I looked over Jordan and what did I see? Coming for to carry me home. A band of angels coming after me. Coming for to carry me home. I'm looking over Jordan, and what do I see? Home, home, heaven. We sing to Canaan's land, I'm on my way where the soul never dies. My darkest night will turn to day where the soul never dies. I'm crossing the Jordan, and I'm going to heaven. And Canaan's land has for a long time, at least in my life, and in many of yours, Canaan's land has been considered the picture of heaven. Listen to me, it is not. Canaan's land is not heaven. Crossing the Jordan is not crossing over into eternity, into heaven. Well, how do you know? Are we gonna go into heaven and have to fight battles? And fight wars? And struggle and scrap to get every piece of land on which the soles of our feet tread? Is that the promise of heaven? The promised land is not heaven. No, listen to me. The promised land is a picture and type of the Christian life. Meaning what? Meaning we're in the promised land right now. Well, Rick, you've long said, no, 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 no. This the kingdom now theology is not true. We're not in the kingdom. I didn't say we were in the kingdom. I said we're in the promised land. The kingdom's not gonna come for 400 years for Israel. They're in the land. The kingdom is coming. They're in the land. Brothers and sisters, we are in the land. We are living in the promise. It's a victorious life that's portrayed in the book of Joshua. A victorious life lived in the presence of God and lived by the promise of God. It's life in the passage. And by the way, at the very end of the book of Joshua, Chapter 24, verse 31, it says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Yehoshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua. 
and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. That is a summation of this 32-year rite of passage. They knew the Lord. They trusted him. They lived for him. They conquered land for him. This, these were good, challenging, tough, difficult, yes, but good times because it was life in the passage, life in the promise, life in the presence of God. And I, I think sometimes as Christians, we've forgotten that's right now. This is the rite of passage. This is where we live. I keep saying the rite of passage. Yeah, because we are moving from what we were into who we are toward what we will become. Exactly as was happening to Israel when they came into the land. That's a huge change of perspective, especially for those who are discouraged. Wow, I can't wait till we cross the Jordan. You already did. Can't wait till we own the promises. You have them. I'm gonna have no voice second service, I'm sure of it. <laughs> Again, don't misunderstand me. It's not kingdom now theology, but Canaan is neither heaven nor is the promised land the kingdom, not yet. There are battles to fight. There are wars to consider, conquests and struggles as we learn to lay hold of, to take hold of by faith, the promises, and God explains that powerfully back in Exodus chapter 23, and I truly am almost done, but boy. Exodus 23, verse 29, he says, God tells Moses, tells the people, I will not drive them out before you in a single year. How about applying that to your Christian life? I gave my life to Jesus a year ago, and I'm still struggling. I will not drive it out before you in a single year that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. That's the process we're in. The driving out little by little, a bit at a time. By the way, did you know that Christianity is still the fastest growing faith on the earth? Did you know that? Did you know that in the last 10 years, atheism has been on the decline while Christianity continues to increase? Well, it doesn't look like it in America. Well, I didn't say America. <laughs> Africa, the Middle East, Christianity is surging, my friends, almost like it's going back home to where it started. The question is here in America, what are we gonna do? Here in Oak Harbor, in Anacortes, in Coopville, what are we gonna do? Here in the Pacific Northwest, are we gonna own the promises? As he drives out before us, as he promised he would, we live the promises, he drives out the enemy. Alan Redpath said this, is it not true that the greatest passages in the New Testament are written not so much for the conversion of the sinner, but for the perfecting of the saint? revealing the way of true holiness of life. Yet, is it not also true that the majority of Christians come far short and are content, listen to this, with a wilderness experience, justified but not enjoying possession of all their inheritance in Christ. And I'm gonna talk more about this. If the Red Sea is a picture of baptism, what is the wilderness? The wilderness is a picture of a Christian who has been justified but has not taken hold of the promises. And so you're wandering. And so you don't know the joy 
of your inheritance. And then you cross the Jordan River. Well, what's that a picture of? <laughs> we'll talk about that next week. But in Joshua chapter one, verse two, God says, cross this Jordan. Cross this Jordan. From a New Testament perspective, crossing the Jordan means we are going to enter the rest. Hebrews chapter three and chapter four. Talk about that. I'll leave that to you to read. Hebrews three and four talks about enter, be diligent to enter his rest. The rest is after you've crossed the Jordan, not before. There's no rest in the wilderness. The rest is in the land of promise. The rest is in the rite of passage. It's moving from, great way to put it, it's moving from Romans seven to Romans eight. I'm gonna leave that one to you to read. Moving from Romans seven to Romans eight, Romans seven is, oh wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Romans seven is, oh, I sin, but I repent, but then I sin again, but I repent, but I sin again. Stop it, cross the Jordan already. And come into Romans eight, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's life in the promise. Not back there going, oh, baby, stop it. Come into the promise of God. That is exciting. That is living. And I'm just gonna ask you one final question. Who's up for the fight? This fall, who is up for the fight? Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life which you, to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Let's follow Yeshua into the promise. 